Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. It's our habit at Hope uh, to walk through the Bible one verse at a time. But this year we are walking through the entire Bible one book at a time. And for the last few weeks we've been looking at the poetry books that are right smack in the middle of God's story. God apparently wants us to engage Him. Not just with our minds, but the poetry books tell us that God wants us to actually engage Him with our whole bodies, our imaginations, our emotions, our singing. These poetry books are Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, Lamentations, and Psalms. And some have divided these poetry books into two separate volumes, wisdom books and song books. And we've already, if you've been with us, you know we've already explored the wisdom books. And so today we look into the song books of the Bible. We actually looked at Psalms already, which means we will look at Lamentations next week. And of course, that means this morning we look at Song of Songs. Now, if you're familiar with this book in the Bible, then you might be getting nervous right about now. Uh, And that's because this book is not just any song book. Conservative Old Testament scholar Trimper Longman describes Song of Songs as an erotic psalter or book of songs. And so right in the middle, the heart of our Bible is a collection of songs that celebrate marital intimacy. And in my mind, uh, there is nothing more complicated than the topic of sex in our cultural moment. And so all of us, I think, should be getting nervous, to be honest. Myself included. But the therapists in my life, they tell me that it's best to name the emotional elephants in the room. Amen? Just name them. And so before we start, let's just name the fact that this book and its topic is powerful. Which means it has the power to bless this morning. But it also has the power to harm this morning. And so nerves are appropriate. Paul tells the church, the apostle tells the church in Titus to adorn the doctrine of God. To adorn the doctrine of God. That means we are called not just to believe right things about God, but to make those truths beautiful. That's what adorn means. And that must be true about Christian sexuality. We must adorn our convictions well. Unfortunately, this isn't what always happens, especially when it comes to this book. Uh, Sometimes, maybe you can relate to this, when I'm cooking with my wife, I have to duck for cover. Because the way she manages the chef's knife. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, this this is like... Hide. Thing is flinging around. Well, this book is sharper than a chef's knife. And so we must handle it well, or else people are going to get hurt. I can think of three ways before we get started in my own short life 
that this book has been handled carelessly, in my own experience. And so the first one I've seen is as a self-help book. There is a temptation to treat this book like a dating and marriage manual. And I think that's understandable because there's nothing more confusing and toxic about the advice that we get these days. But it's not the purpose of poetry. And this approach often means that we bend the text to mean whatever we want it to mean. Second, this book can be used as a weapon. A well-known podcast recently shared the stories of women who were subjected to sexual abuse in their own marriages. And this book factored large in their stories. Because this book is erotic, the book can be wielded as a coercive weapon within Christian marriages. But this grieves the God who inspired this book, and it actually goes against the message of the book. I mean, first of all, this book begins and ends with the female voice. She has the last and the first word, and by the way, the majority of the words within it, too. 53% to 39%, to be exact. In fact, the men who are in this book, besides the husband, like the brothers of the woman, they're described negatively in this book as controlling and abusive. King Solomon himself is described negatively in this book, in chapter 8. So that scholar George Atlas says that Solomon, the Solomon we find here, is not the wise Solomon of Proverbs, but the womanizer Solomon of 1 Kings 11 with his hair. And against these men is yet another bold woman who goes against the cultural norms. Right in the middle of her Bible. Like Ruth and others. It celebrates mutuality as well, this book. The refrain in this book is, I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. Which sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul in his letter to the first Corinthian, in his first letter to the Corinthians, so chapter seven, verse four says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but who does? The wife does. Authority. Okay? That's mutuality. And I think that the Song of Solomon reinforces this as well. The two words that describe this book is safety and freedom. And you can't have one without the other. And it's evil, hear that, it's evil when this book is used in any way to be coercive or abusive. There's a third way that I've seen this book sort of handled in a dangerous way, and that's as an exclusive club. What do I mean? Well, I think this book can be treated as an exclusive party. So yes, I'll say this. The sexual intimacy that is celebrated in this book is only for the context of marriage. But that does not mean that singles have 65 books of the Bible and married folks have 66 books of the Bible. This book is for everyone. And to insinuate the single men and women can't read this book is actually to rip this book out of its larger story. The larger story of the Bible is a marriage story, but it's not a human marriage. 
The larger story of the Bible is a marriage story, but it's a marriage between Jesus and his bride, the church. And that's everybody in this room. Marriage union between two differently sexed bodies, male and female, are symbols. They're God's authorized symbols or signposts that point towards God's marriage to the church. They are His symbols, and that means that the marital intimacy celebrated in Song of Songs is good, but it is not ultimate. In fact, Jesus tells us human marriages are at their best momentary. Did you know that? Jesus radically blesses singleness in a culture then when singleness was despised. How? By reminding us that there is no marriage in the new heavens and new earth. And by pointing us to the one future marriage feast that is for all of God's people. And that all of God's people will experience. Forever. So this means that Song of Songs is not just for married folks. It's not an exclusive club, and it certainly isn't an exalted club. Ed Shaw, he helped me see this in his book, Purposeful Sexuality. He shares how powerful this theology of marriage is for someone like him. He writes, I now enjoy going to weddings as a single man in my mid-40s with no prospect of ever having one in my own, of my own. I used to see them as advertisements for a life that would never be mine, and as a result found them rather painful. I now see them as trailers for an experience that will be mine one day soon, and in a much better way than any of the hundred excellent weddings I have been to over the last 25 years. He's a pastor. That's why he's been to 100 weddings. <laughs> Some of you have been to 100 weddings just because you have a lot of friends. So whatever we say about Song of Songs this morning, it has to be good news to everybody sitting here in this room. Married or not. And I believe it is. So Song of Songs is a sharp knife, like all of God's Word. Let's handle it well this morning. Amen? And to do that, I want to pray first. Lord... Would the words of my mouth and would the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, especially on this morning? You are a rock, you are a redeemer. And Holy Spirit, would we see Jesus in your word this morning so that he would be more beautiful than when we walked in this room? So that he would be more beautiful to our sight, to, our, to the eyes of our heart. And we wait for the day when we can see him face-to-face. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So when I was a kid, uh, my my friend had a room in his house. And this was one of those off-limit rooms. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where the carpet is like perfectly vacuumed, kind of like the outfield of a professional baseball field. And it's just always that way. And you can't walk through it. You can't even be in it. Do you know what I'm talking about? And as I think back to that room, I often wonder, what was that room for? I know what it wasn't for. It wasn't for playing in. It wasn't for eating in. It wasn't for entertaining in. It wasn't for even walking in. But what was it for? I'll never know. And that's because this room was defined by prohibitions. Well, the same could be said about Christian sexuality. We do a good job teaching what it isn't. But we do a lousy job telling a story of what it is, positively. 
We could call this yellow tape sexuality. We have wrapped this gift from God in so much yellow caution tape, it's ugly. No wonder people are leaving it behind. Now, the Bible does have a lot of warnings. It does have a lot of thou shalt nots in the Bible related to this, but that's not all it has. Right in the middle of the Bible is a collection of poems celebrating the intimacy of marriage. And it's so shockingly forthright, though most of it is ancient entendre, double entendre, is so forthright in praise of marital intimacy that for generations the church has explained it away. Basically said to all of its parishioners, nothing to see here. But that was wrong. God saw fit to celebrate his gift. God knew that thou shalt not, does not do his gift justice. It's necessary, but it can't be everything. And so I love this question from Old Testament scholar Trimper Longman. What is a book like the Song of Songs doing in the Bible? We respond by asking the reader to imagine the Bible without the song. Without the song, the church and synagogue would be left with spare and virtually exclusively negative words about an important aspect of our life. The songs in our Bible so that we would move from yellow tape sexuality to what Ed Shaw calls purposeful sexuality. Sexuality has a God-given purpose, and this is given to us and described for us in the book of Psalms. So what is the Song of Songs anyway? Uh, well, we have to tread carefully here because it's poetry. And poetry is just opens itself up to all kinds of different interpretations. And this book is very much open to all kinds of different interpretations and has been throughout history. So some think it's only about Jesus and the church. That's it. Others think that it's only about earthly marital intimacy. That's it. Some think it tells a linear drama, like a kind of ancient Hallmark movie. Others think, no, 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 it doesn't tell a story at all. It's just a bunch, like sort of a mishmash of poetry. This reminds me of the diet wars. Okay, so vegans hurl vegetables toward the ketos. And ketos hurl slabs of meat. To, toward the vegans, right? And then the Mediterranean diet folks just are standing and watching eating their fish. You know what I'm talking about? And we all are sort of like, I'm the healthiest. I've got the corner on the diet. Like, clearly I'm right and you're wrong. And there's no space in between. But I once read a food scientist who wondered what would happen if we pushed these diets closer together so that they overlap like a Venn diagram. And what do each of these diets have in common? Well, it turns out they all have some very uncontroversial things in common, <laughs> like, like eating intentionally and eating very little sugar and eating vegetables. Like these are all very uncontroversial things that they overlap in. And so I look at all these interpretive options with the Song of Songs and I see a lot of difference. And I wrestled with it even in the past few weeks as I've studied this text more in depth. But I've also seen a lot of overlap between all of these different approaches. And so instead of despairing about the different options and saying, I give up, what I would love to do is camp out in the overlaps this morning. 
And if you want to talk with me about how some of these differences play out and sort of where I land, I would love to go there. But if we were just to spend our time in the overlaps this morning, we have plenty to talk about. Amen? I want to say yes to as much as I can. And so, yes, it is about Jesus and the church because all marriages are. And I want to say, yes, it is about earthy marital intimacy because God made it and called it good. And I want to say, yes, it is a story about a man and a woman who love each other and delight in each other. And I want to say, yes, the story, though, is not linear. It's scattered. It's impressionistic, like a collection of poems. In other words, Song of Songs is a book of poetic songs that tells a nonlinear kind of kaleidoscopic story of a man and woman who delight in each other and to God's glory. Which, of course, says something about God, because all sex does. But this isn't just any set of songs. If you look at the very first verse of chapter one, it says that this is a song of songs or a song of all songs. The best song. Sex has so many songs, but only one brings life. And we've all been trained to sing three destruct, what I'll call destructive songs about sex. These three songs are out of tune with God's creation, out of tune with God's desire. But only God's song of songs is in tune. So what are the three off-key songs? I want to call them this. The negative song, the naive song, and the needy song. So first, the first song that we're tempted to sing is the negative song. This song criticizes God's good gift. The Song of Solomon will not let us sing this song at all. It's way too positive about God's gift of marital intimacy. And to see this, we could close our eyes and just point. You know, turn to a, turn to a passage and point. To see that this is an overwhelmingly positive book about marital intimacy. It's probably a good idea to go where many readers think is the most important poem in the whole collection. So it's in chapter 8, verse 5. Who is that coming? This is the woman, the wife speaking. Who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Under the apple tree, I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she bore you. There she who bore you was in labor. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It flash, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. And so, I'll just say this. This is super tame compared to most of the song. All right? Song of Song is full of holy double entendres. And it doesn't actually take much effort to see them when you read it. But even this passage, which is tame is suggestive and celebratory. I mean, she connects intimacy to conception and childbirth in verse 5. And then the wife says to her husband, press me into your heart and your arms so that I am always there, like a seal. She goes on, my love for you is stronger than death, which is 
Very strong. Death, yes. <laughs> Who cheats death? No one cheats death. Yet her love is stronger than that. Her jealousy is more fierce. And then in verse 7, she anticipates the Beatles, right? Money can't buy me love. That's essentially what she's saying. She's like, this is... Pity the person who wants to buy this. And honestly, verse 7 is a sanctified pot shot at King Solomon in his hair. Which gets criticized later on in the text. Verse 11. And here's the important thing about all this. She says that this consummation is the very flame of the Lord. Did you catch that? Verse 6 at the very bottom. God is not embarrassed by this passion. It's his fire. The problem is we are more embarrassed by this book than God himself apparently is. So... You all know the Jefferson Bible. You've heard of that before. Thomas Jefferson famously created his own Bible. He decided he was wiser than God in certain areas. And so he carefully and intellectually cut out the parts and carved out the parts and the verses that didn't square with his own sort of enlightenment ideals. And we kind of laugh at this. And we actually kind of see this as a very arrogant thing to do, don't we? But we are in danger of doing the same exact thing with this ancient song, aren't we? So today we might wrongly judge it to be too conservative, maybe. Confining sex to marriage marked by sexual difference. But for most of the church history, we wrongly judged it as too progressive. In fact, most of church history essentially cut this book out of the Bible, turning it into a spiritual allegory. What God really means is this. But no, the Song of Songs is positive. God made sex, it is a good thing, and when experienced within God's confines, safe confines, it's a very good thing. So let's not call God's creation junk. As C.S. Lewis puts it, don't be more spiritual than God is. He created marriage, and he designed this to be a key element of marital union. The true song, the in key song, is a positive song, not a negative song. Which takes us to the second out of key song, which is the naive song. This song trivializes God's gift. We underestimate the sheer power of it. We trivialize it. And we see this over and over again, actually, in the Song of Songs. So the woman constantly warns us, do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And even in the passage that we just read in chapter 8, she says that love is more powerful than death. And this is actually quite surprising because it's coming from a married woman. She's not just talking about the power of sex outside of marriage. Therefore, do not awaken it. No, no. She's also talking about the power of sex within marriage. There's nothing. This is nothing to trifle with. Is the big takeaway. If you've ever been um, in a car accident, you know that driving a car is very dangerous. It's sort of like shockingly dangerous. And we kind of blissfully ignore that reality most of the time we're driving Yes, driving a car is a great gift. It's, it's an amazing gift to be able to go like 75 miles per hour and to be connected to friends and family who are far away in this way. That's an amazing gift. But this gift is dangerous. As, as my friend puts it, we're basically hurling towards each other in 4,000 pound missiles with like a few feet of difference when we're going towards each other on the highway. 
And that's why we have licenses. That's why we have age limits. That's why we have driver's ed. That's why they check your eyes at the BMV, you know? And when we do get in a wreck, when we do get in a wreck, we don't just suffer as individual souls, like by ourselves. No, no, our bodies suffer, and even other people's bodies suffer as well. Well, this is exactly how Song of Songs would have us think about sex. Seriously. We are in danger of trivializing it, but if we sing this song, we will respect its immense power. Yes, its power to bless, its power to harm as well. So this isn't just a celebration, it's a caution as well. It's not just delight, but it's danger as well. And so we would do well this morning, all of us, to respect her warning and to respect God's good boundaries in it. Which takes us to the last and final song, the needy song. This song idolizes the gift. This song takes the gift and idolizes it. And I think a major takeaway from this book is that marital intimacy is a good gift, but a terrible God. One Old Testament scholar puts it this way. To make sex the center of one's life is to devote one's life into a capricious and dangerous God. Is to devote one's life to a capricious and dangerous God. Love and sex are not the final answer to life's trouble or life's meaning. In fact, the very last poem in Song of Song, so chapter 8, verse 13, speaks to this. The husband cries out, like literally cries out, so that she can hear him because she's far away. Oh, you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. And she cries back to cover the distance in verse 14. Make haste, my beloved, make haste and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. Okay, here's a takeaway from these two verses here. For a book that celebrates union, it has a lousy ending. Here's why. Do you notice it's ending in separation and yearning? This script would be rejected in Hollywood. They would say, no, 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 cut those two verses out. The entire song is a songbook that celebrates union and it's ending in a sort of lack of union. And so close readers of the Song of Solomon actually think that this is exactly on purpose. It speaks to the fact that it's powerful, yes, but it isn't everything because it points to something else. It points honestly to someone else. There's a yearning there. There's a distance there. Once when I was fly fishing with a friend, we were saying to each other, it kind of makes sense that people would worship nature. Because <laughs> the surroundings were so beautiful. And we were just sort of saying, it kind of makes sense. Like, I get it. It isn't right. That would be idolatry. Because God made it. Just in case you're unclear on where I stand on that. Um, it's not right, but it makes sense. It makes total sense. Why? Because the beauty kind of draws you in in a powerful way. Well, the same could be said about sexuality. It's so powerful. It kind of makes sense that it takes a center role in our life. And it kind of makes sense that it's one of the most popular idols of our day, next to money, perhaps, and power. But if we listen to this wise woman's warnings, we will be able to celebrate the gift but we will also be able to say, I don't, I don't need it. You know? 
I don't need anything. Because I already have what it points to. Intimacy with the Lord. Ed Shaw quotes secular author and writer Olivia Fain. I'm so struck by this. She says in one of her writings that she has been sexually abused, but quote, not by a film producer or a priest, but the dominant ideology. Quote, that sex is important and profound and you are obliged to join in. And that's coming from a non-Christian voice. And she feels like it's a, it's a harmful ideology. It's harmed her. I actually think that's really wise. And I actually think that that means that some songs is good news for all of us. For married folks and folks who are not called to marriage, either through circumstance, out of our control, or by purposeful vocation. Both are highly honored by Jesus. And so we can all stop singing the needy song and sing this song of songs, this song of all songs, a song that celebrates but doesn't idolize, a song that ultimately points us to Jesus. So many commentators point out, and I think they're right, how Edenic this book is. It's full of garden imagery. I don't think that's on accident. It almost feels as if when you're reading this, and I would encourage you to read this and through the lens in which we've, um, we've discovered this morning. And as you read it, notice, it almost feels like the shame and the brokenness in the Garden of Eden between Adam and Eve is being reversed. In a way, Song of Songs seems like an Eden restored. This king and queen in the garden, naked and unashamed. But even so, how does it end? It ends in estrangement and longing. Because this restoration of Eden, this one in Song of Psalms, is only a preview. And it's not the ultimate thing. Like all marriages, it points to a true and a final and a fulfilling wedding. One that we all yearn for. And it points to its fulfillment. The wedding feast of the Lamb, Jesus. In the words of the ancient hymn, maybe some of my favorite line in all of singing, Bethlehem hath opened Eden. This song is for you, all of you. It's the safest song. It's the most true song. This book speaks of passion. But this passion is meant to signal the passion that God has for you. It's stronger than death. It's stronger than death. Trevor Longman says that jealousy is only spoken of positively in two relationships in the Bible. Marriage and God's covenant relationship to us. God is jealous for you. It moves him when you reject him. And he is moved to 
toward you. Even at greatest cost to himself. Maybe this morning you are feeling shame. I don't know. Whatever is going on inside of our hearts this morning, mine included, whatever's going on inside of my heart whenever we encounter this book, what we ought to walk away from is this. That Jesus not only forgives you, but he cleanses you. He removes your shame. He knows you perfectly. And he loves you to that same extent. This is the love of Jesus that is stronger than death. That's his jealousy for you. And so, Lord, we come on this morning receptive to what you would have to say to us this morning from your word. Whatever song we're singing that's out of tune with your word, we pray that you would align us in harmony with what you have already sung in your word. Which is ultimately hope in Jesus. That final wedding feast. Where all of our longings, all of our yearnings will be met. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.